Welcome to Lasso Lessons. I'm Mike Merrill. I'm Kathy Buckman. And today we're talking about season two, episode two, Lavender. And I'll be honest, we like to start off these shows with a very detailed chronological recap that goes through point by point every scene and notes what's going on in the scene. But I found that really hard to do for this one. Yeah, I think chronological is not always the best way to recap something. Well, I think in this particular case, I struggle because it is jam-packed. It has many short scenes. There's a lot of intercutting of the various characters and their story arcs. So let me spell this out a bit. Typically in a half-hour sitcom, say, you probably have an A or main storyline and then a B, a subplot kind of line, or at least maybe one and a half storylines. But in this particular episode, we have at least three pretty major storylines. The A storyline is that Jamie is looking for a way to come back to Richmond, and Ted has to decide if he'll allow that. The B storyline is that Roy needs something to do. His career ended. He's a bit lost and uh, is looking for something to do. Will he finally try TV, football, punditry? And then there's a C storyline, which is the relationship between Ted and the team shrink, Dr. Sharon. Now, these three carry most of the show. As I said, this is a lot of storylines, but I think they do some really smart things. The Jamie and Roy stories have some similarities, so those are pointed out. And then finally, the C storyline, the story of Ted and Dr. Sharon, is sort of weaved into the main storyline of Ted deciding what to do about Jamie. And all of this builds to a final set piece, one of their classic set pieces that we see in Lasso Lessons. For example, the red carpet set piece from the second season. And this final set piece pulls together at least the latter two story threads. Yeah, this episode definitely has a dramatic ending. And I like your use of the term set piece because that is also a football term. That, that's a lot of storylines for 30 minutes, but that's just the start of it. Because I think one of the things that's going on in this episode, it's the second episode of the second season. And in the first episode, they really focused on Danny Rojas, for example, and his challenges. In this second episode, I think they're checking in on a whole bunch of threads that were left from the first season. For a show that likes callbacks, at this point, they have a great volume of things that they can call back to. Mike, it seems like you've done a good job figuring out what those callbacks are. Why don't you take us through it? So these are various threads that have been left from the previous season. Okay, we continue to see Nate's new authoritarian sort of personality emerge and how he takes it out on Will, his kit keeper replacement. Yep, we definitely see that. We get a very quick view of, on Coach Beard's tumultuous love life. Yeah, we haven't talked about that a lot, but yeah, it's still tumultuous. We explore the emotional and yes, sexual dynamics of Keely and Roy's relationship, even who cooks dinner. We are also provided a brief but pointed reminder that Roy is essentially avoiding Ted and trying to have no interaction with him. We also see Keeley's continuing success as the social media and marketing expert for the team. And we also see more of her strong social intelligence. We check in on how Ted and Rebecca are doing. It seems they don't have quite as much to talk about this season, but they do have a scene where they check in. We have the humorous trope of Higgins displaced by Sharon looking for a place to set up his office. And this, by the way, seems to have a little bit of a metaphorical resonance, I think, uh, trying to determine his place in the club. We witness the continued expansion of Sam's role, his relationship with Ted, with Jamie, with the team, even with Dubai Air. We get a quick check-in. 
from May at the pub and the three fans that often provide commentary on FC Richmond. I think at the moment it's the chorus. Yeah, completely. In Shakespeare, you would call them the mechanicals, like in Midsummer Night's Dream. Sharon meets Keeley and Rebecca, opening the door for deepening of their possible relationships. And we get just a touch of Danny Rojas for Comic Relief, who makes a funny comment about the photo that one of the fans takes of Ted in the pub. I think that sets us up for further interplay between him and Jamie. That's an incredible list of things that happen, threads that are picked up on top of the three main storylines. I want to point out, like to my mind, they must have some way of tracking all these stories. When you have this many major characters, there's a lot of potential relationships. And then there's three-party relationships, like how Roy and Keeley talk about Jamie. And then there's group relationships, like how the three fans in the pub talk to any particular character, usually as a group, but then they have their own interplay between them. They must be tracking this in some way. In the old days, you could imagine them having a giant board up with cards attached to it. Now I think of a spreadsheet or even something like a JIRA board or a database, just some way of tracking this. By they, I think you mean the showrunners and the show writers. Yeah, the showrunner and the show writers are tracking all this, making sure they keep on top of these things, don't let them go cold, remind us of those key things so they can continue working with them later. And I want to emphasize, I don't think this is mechanical. What's amazing about this particular episode is all this happens, but it sort of feels of one piece. And we'll be talking about the ways they achieve that. And so one of the questions you might ask here is all this detail around all these different stories and all these different interactions between all these various people, how does that fit into a podcast about leadership and business and so forth in Ted Lasso? One of the things I would note is that in some ways, the show like Ted Lasso is actually creating a sense of what being inside a real community of people is like, where you have so many interactions. If you have 12 main characters here, the number of potential interactions between all the characters, well, there is a formula for it, but it's enormous. It's an enormous constellation. And as we said, there's subgroups that play off each other. Diamond dogs are different together than they are as individuals. The sheer number of different points of connection inside a company is way beyond the ability for any one person to really understand, even though our brains are designed exactly for this. This is what our brains do best. Of all the complex things in the world, we track other people's relationships really well. Yeah, I mean, we're good at tracking them. I'm not sure we're so great at managing them. As somebody who works on interpersonal skills can tell you, we do a lot of things wrong in our interpersonal relationships if we act from our wiring, but we certainly pay a ton of attention to what the other people in any organization are doing, saying, and how it affects us. I think the world of Ted Lasso is an organization. It's a workplace comedy. It puts a bunch of people together in a workplace and sees how they interact. I think by default, pretty much everything that happens in Ted Lasso is interesting to us from the point of view of thinking about how people lead, how people conduct themselves, how people learn within organizations. So with all of that under our belt, in lieu of that kind of full, detailed, chronological recap of the show that we normally like to do, let me focus on the three main stories. And I'm going to follow each one for a bit, even though in the actual show, they're intercut and overlapping. Yeah, that sounds good. Let's do that. Okay. Season two, episode two, Lavender, opens on the set of Lust Conquers All, which is this British reality uh, dating show from which we see Jamie Tart summarily booted. He lands on a British morning show, 
where he is informed by the host that Man City does not want him back. And by the way, as he leaves the studio, this film stock seems to change. I don't know enough to know exactly what's traditionally being filmed on, what is filmed on here, but it has kind of a different feel to it. And we see Jamie signing photos and otherwise being nice to fans. And I think this is important because it reminds us that this is a somewhat different Jamie than we saw at the beginning of season one, right? He's been changed. He's been changed by his experience at Man City. He's possibly even changed by the note. He, he really was very suspicious of Ted's concern for him. And he's going to realize, oh no, Ted really does care about me. There's no way that Jamie hasn't been changed by the interaction with Ted. I think we're just waiting to see is how. He then turns to his agent who informs him that indeed no team throughout Europe wants him. He stalks Keely to see if she might have an in at Richmond. She in turn sends them on to Ted who Jamie locates in the pub. Ted informs Jamie that he has burned a lot of bridges at Richmond, so coming back to the club is probably not a good idea. However, the three fans that seem to always be in the pub take a photo of Ted and Jamie and post it to, to the socials, where Colin finds it and shows it to the team, who believe that this indicates that Ted has assented to Jamie's return. Sam, in particular, is quite upset and confronts Ted on the practice pitch. I can see why he does that, though I would say that the evidence for Jamie's return at this point is premature. Now, overlapping all this, kind of interweaved with all of it, is Roy's story, which has some parallels, as we'll see. Roy, who, remember, has lost his place on the team due to an injury, has ended his season coaching his young niece's soccer team. Keeley encourages him to consider punditry, but he insists he is not interested. She knows that he and Jamie are alike. Both lost, but at least Jamie is trying to find his way back, she says. Once again, as she did in the first season, Keely is very adept at finding the hidden emotional through line of these shows. And she points out to us how this story, in fact, reflects the main story. He agrees to try it, and we will see him dressed all in black. Again, he cleans up very well on the show. And to the Sex Pistols Anarchy in the UK, he approaches the set of the sports show. I am an anarchist. Don't know what I want, but I know how to get it. I want to destroy. And that is exactly what Roy does. He destroys, bringing his anger to bear on Chelsea, the team of his best years, and thereby winning the hearts of the fans once again. And with that, he's back in the game. I just love the use of the song here. The, the lyrics, the sound of the song, the vibe of just what we think of the Sex Pistols just so perfectly suits exactly what Roy does in this scene. And it is a triumph. Oh, by the way, did you catch what his ringtone is? Oh, yeah, he does have a ringtone. And a point was made to us about it, but I can't recall. What was it? Bad to the Bone. Another very fitting oh, of course. song yeah. for Roy. Roy, the bad boy. While all this is happening, Ted learns that Higgins has hired Dr. Sherrod as a counselor for the team for the rest of the season. He proceeds to track her down, but she sort of rebuffs his attempts to get to know her better. The biscuits, asking her what her favorite book is. This is all reminiscent of his first attempts to develop intimacy with Rebecca in season one. But whereas Rebecca just sort of semi-politely demurred, Sharon actually calls him out on it. This is obviously your way of connecting. It's very disarming. I just really enjoy the repetition of Ted's moves here and that we all in season two very clearly see them as the moves that he makes with the biscuits, but he just seems so much less comfortable. So it is not surprising that this doesn't work. And Sharon, she's just not Rebecca. 
Yeah, trying to repeat the same moves that worked in one situation won't always work in another, a good business lesson. And now those A and C stories come together. The story of Jamie wanting to come back and Ted trying to decide if he can and Ted's relationship with Dr. Sharon. Ted informs the Diamond Dogs, that's that group of Higgins and Beard and Nate, that he is reconsidering Jamie's request to come back. Sam has reminded him that not everyone has a great dad and that the team has always stood for never giving up. The Diamond Dogs deliver a split verdict on the wisdom of Jamie's return. Afterwards, Ted runs into Dr. Sharon outside the clubhouse. And by the way, you'll notice some of the more intimate moments in the show do happen outside. It's an interesting thing they use. She thanks him for letting him attend the practice. And then he asks her to provide her feedback in person. She tells him that all the employees at Richmond are thoughtful and kind and listen to one another. She's reflecting back to Ted that she has noticed the inclusive atmosphere that he has very deliberately sought to create. And you can imagine that this feels very good for him to have somebody notice it. Yeah. And he asks her if she thinks if it ain't broke, don't fix it should apply. But she asks him if everyone agrees that being winless with eight straight ties ain't broke. And this is exactly what we were talking about in last season with the polarities, the polarity of inclusiveness in opposition to the polarity of winning, if you will. This is definitely a return to that polarity. Ted as a leader can anchor on the goal of creating inclusivity, but it's possible that he can't simultaneously also focus on the goal of making a winning team, that there's something that he'll have to change if he wants to make winning the goal. That's right. And we see signs that his attempt at build intimacy may be paying off. She suggests that they speak further someday. She finally allows him to call her doc, and she tells him in a delayed answer to his early question that her favorite book is The Prince of Tides. Yeah, Prince of Tides by Pat Conroy. This is a very interesting choice for her to note as her favorite book. So anyone familiar with the book or the movie is the story of a woman who's a psychiatrist and her relationship with a man who slowly reveals the traumatic experiences of his youth. That is interesting and makes me a little bit nervous, to be honest. Yeah. Who here might have traumatic experiences from his youth that Sharon might <sighs> interact with? Well, we'll talk more about that in a bit. Oh, by the way, sometimes we're asked if we know what happens in the rest of the season. We have watched through episode four, so we don't know what happens, but I think we're getting some hints here. There may be something lying underneath Ted's demeanor and also beneath his sometimes his drinking, his panic attacks, but we'll get there. So this conversation will never explicitly about Jamie clearly settles the question for Ted. And in the final scene of the episode, we see his decision, or rather everyone does. Because the writers contrived to have Keely and Rebecca together to be joined by Sharon in Rebecca's office. And they all are called by Higgins to the window. The team is on the field, the coach is on the sidelines. And just as Roy entered to anarchy in the UK, Jamie runs onto the field to Queens tear it up. And first, can we just note how hard Queen can rock? Yeah, they were a rock band for sure. Are you ready? We're going to tear it up, stir it up, break it up. But of course, it's not just Roy and Jamie who promised this creative destruction, but Ted too, as the look on Sam's face tells us. If it ain't broke, Ted seems to say, break it. This is a bold move by Ted, and I love the buildup to this moment. And what a fantastic way to end the episode. Great set piece. 
All right. You mentioned callbacks. You want to address some of the callbacks that you see going on here? Okay. Now comes the moment when we start to make some connections to leadership and learning. I, I think there are a couple pieces here that are developing that we've talked about already that are worth coming back to. First, I think there's Nate's journey as a new manager. Being a new manager is tough. Everybody has to find their new style. And we have discovered that Nate seems to be leaning into a very authoritarian, bullying, critiquing style with Will, who has taken his old job. But in this episode, I just want to say that Nate does a tiny bit better. So the title of the episode comes from a short exchange between Nate and Will, where Will has put lavender scented fabric softener into the laundry. So now the kits and I guess the towels are smelling a little bit like lavender. And Nate explodes at Will about just the folly of doing such a thing. But he follows up this critique by explaining why. He explains why this is a thing that somebody might not do. Because, you know, Will obviously thinks he's made a good choice. He thinks he's provided a calming scent to the team. And Nate says, don't make changes that could throw off a player's headspace, which actually seems like a sensible bit of advice that is coming from Nate's own experience. And to me, that looks like him being slightly better as a manager. Another callback is the possibility for coaching styles to be different and yet still effective. So we see just a tiny bit of Roy on the pitch with the under eight soccer team that he's coaching. And he says to this group of adorable girls after they have just lost a match, burn this into your brains, which is exactly the opposite of the way Ted would do it. Ted would say, be a goldfish, forget but as the anti-Ted, Roy says, remember how this feels to fuel you to play better in the future. And there are probably people or players that this coaching style would work well for. And I think there are probably people that this coaching style would work terribly for. I think what it shows us really is that Ted doesn't have the perfect style and Roy doesn't have the perfect style either. It really just might be about adapting yourself to the people and giving them what they need. But of course, the adorable eight-year-old girls aren't the slightest bit phased by this and go off happily. And the other coach or the mom, or maybe she's a mom yeah. coach, she basically says that as long as they know your heart's in it, your way will be fine. And I think that's really crucial is motivation. We've spoken about this before. Some of the motivation is different. Roy is some ways like Jamie was as a youth, but Roy's motivation has always been selfless, has been for the team. Danny's Rojas is sort of like Jamie, as we've mentioned, but he loves the game, whereas Jamie's been doing it for his father. So I think that one of the crucial things there is different styles work, but the motivation has to be motivated towards caring about your team. That is a good point. I think it is helpful if, if you're going to critique the team and if you're really going to force them to confront their mistakes and maybe even yell at them, they need to know that you care. Otherwise, that's just abuse. And the final callback here is to something we brought up in the context of episode one. It's the idea of vulnerability, the extent to which people actually have to make themselves vulnerable, which is scary, in order for good things to happen in their lives, like intimacy. I think the relationship between Keely and Roy as it's developing here is providing an opportunity for Keely to continue this theme. 
So Keely, as we learn in this episode, was, shall we say, quite positively inclined to the emotion that Roy showed during his retirement speech, where he became passionate and vulnerable and teary. And this leads Keeley to talk about Jamie's quest to return to Richmond, which Roy calls pathetic. She thinks it's not pathetic. She thinks it's brave. She thinks that in order to ask for something that you want, you make yourself vulnerable. In order to try new things, you make yourself vulnerable. I think if you worry about being pathetic when you make yourself vulnerable, what you're really doing is you're anchoring in what you imagine other people's perceptions of you will be. We ultimately don't know what other people think of us. And so when we anchor on that, we're often anchoring on our own sense of what we think people think or what we think the social cost will be to us of other people perceiving us in certain ways. And essentially, in order to decide to be a sports pundit, Roy has to decide that he doesn't care, right? He admits that he worries. He says, what if everyone thinks I'm shit? But Keeley's encouragement, which is essentially, when have you ever cared about that, is what allows him to make himself vulnerable to doing something new, which he clearly, in the end, tremendously enjoys. He says, it felt good to be back around the game. I want to talk, of course, about the two Shakespearean references in this particular episode. Why am I not surprised you want to talk about Shakespeare? As I noted in the first season, there was very little Shakespeare, a couple of references. We had two in the first episode of season two, and now we have two in this episode. And I don't think they're accidentally chosen. So let's talk about them a little bit. As we noted, we learned a little bit of Coach Beard's love life. We discover he's been sleeping in the clubhouse, apparently because he and his girlfriend are on the outs. And Nate says, do you sleep here? To which Coach Beard replies, perchance to dream here. And of course, this is a Shakespearean reference. This is from the most famous soliloquy in Shakespeare, the to be or not to be soliloquy. Just quickly on this, by the way. So what's going on here is in To Be or Not To Be, Hamlet is usually thought to be considering suicide. And he says to die, to sleep, to sleep, perchance to dream, I, there's the rub. And the notion here is that he feels that even should he kill himself, that there may be an afterlife. He may awake again in another world. But here it's thrown out as a joke, obviously. Still, it brings this sort of foreboding We started the season with the death of a dog. And as we've noted, there are hints that something deeper is happening here. And then the second one comes towards the end where Dr. Sharon says to Ted, as he talks about trying to decide what to do about Richmond's issues, says, heavy is the head that wears the visor. Now, this is clearly a play on heavy is the head that wears the crown, but with Ted's trademark visor, in place of the regal headwear, the crown. Now, this is partly a cultural misremembering, that's a term, cultural misremembering of the original, which is from Henry IV, part two, uneasy is the head that wears the crown, which is often read to meant that if you have power, you suffer from the stress of it. Actually, in the context of what's in the play, it's more about sleeplessness, but ignore that. It's always been taken metaphorically, and probably Shakespeare would like this metaphor because it extends his initial context that being in power causes this sort of stress. If a king is having trouble sleeping, I 
don't think we take that entirely literally. I think that is also a metaphor for the fact that being a king is not an easy thing to be. Yeah, absolutely. If you ask me, name the two plays that are the most about fathers and sons in the Shakespeare canon. Definitely you would land on Hamlet, and it wouldn't surprise me if you landed on Henry IV Part One and Part Two. So Hamlet, as you may know, is kicked off by a scene in which the ghost of a father visits the son, informing him of the rotten state of his country, Denmark, and charging him with an urgent mission to be achieved. Uh, so that's interesting, I think. And then Henry IV series is about Prince Hal, young Prince Hal, basically rising to the throne. It's about other things too, but that's a kind of historical main line in the play. So these are two plays again about fathers and sons. Hamlet is a play where the main character, Hamlet, is essentially haunted by his father's ghost for the entirety of the drama. Yeah, I don't like that. So we see this, and, and this kind of fathers and sons imagery comes up again. So let's talk about it first, then we'll talk about how this is a continuation of a previous thread we've seen. When Ted ambivalently upbraids Higgin for hiring Dr. Sharon, he finishes with, I'm not your daddy. It's just a throwaway line, but in the course of everything else that follows, it sticks out to me. Jamie's agent tells him that he's always been a son to him, and it's no surprise that Jamie would seek out a different father figure from his own literal father who's so controlling and horrible. When Jamie tracks down Sam in the pub, he tells Ted that he left Man City to anger his controlling father. Ted tells him that sometimes having a hard father is what drives a fellow to becoming great. Jamie then asks Ted if his father was hard on him, and Ted responds, again, with a face that worries me a bit, that his father was much harder on himself. We'll remember, folks, that Ted has told us in the famous dart showdown with Rupert, Rebecca's ex-husband and the ex-order of the club, that his father died when Ted was 16. So when we hear his father was harder on himself and that he died when Ted was 16, hmm. And then Sam sets Ted rethinking about the whole Jamie thing by telling him that Sam's father is so happy to see that Ted is Sam's coach. And this scene, by the way, takes place in front of Higgins. And this is played as kind of a joke because Higgins, decamped from his office, is settled in the weight room. Again, it's a joke. It's funny. But is it a complete accident that Higgins, the man who's most like kind of a standard father figure in the show, always running home to his brood of boys, that he's the one who sees it and praises Ted for the way he handled it. I don't think that's a complete accident. As we said, this all plays back into one of the models that Ted had for what he's doing, right? So he has an inclusive model, but he also tells his own young son on FaceTime that in some ways being a coach is like being a father. That's a compelling list that you've put together, Mike. I am completely convinced that father and son relationships is a strong theme. And it's actually a really interesting theme in that it crosses both comedy and tragedy. It's one of the central themes in literature and movies and art, but it, it seems to be really deeply woven into the fabric of the show. Absolutely. And we have to think about how at the end, in some ways, Coach betrays Sam, what that means for this father model. Yeah, actually, I'm thinking about that, right? So Hamlet is a play that is famous for its central character's inability to make an important decision. And that's essentially the theme for Ted in this episode is should he or shouldn't he when it comes to bringing Jamie back to the club? 
I, I think that this is such an important decision for Ted and really startling for us because we have grown to think of Ted as the kind of person who is going to make a decision very strongly in terms of how the emotional impact is going to hit a player. He's wanting his players to feel psychologically safe. He's wanting them to feel supported. But that's really difficult if you want to bring in a player that's going to help your team win that some of the other players don't like. It is perfectly set up to put Ted into a dilemma. And I think it is fascinating that he made the choice that he did. It shows us that season two Ted is going to be making some decisions that don't really resemble what season one Ted would have done. Mm, yep. All right. So that's a father to rely on. I think you have some other business related themes that you wanted to address. I really just have one thing I want to talk about in this episode that really resonates with what I see in the business setting. Broadly, I think I would put this under the heading of decision-making. The longer I work with people in business through coaching, training, consulting, I have come to notice that the friction that people feel over how decisions get made is incredibly important to address. First of all, it's incredibly frustrating for people when they feel like decisions don't get made well. And I think it's incredibly powerful for organizations if they really do know how to make decisions effectively, make them on the basis of the right information, and then have people aligned to carry out those decisions in the end. I feel like there are two things that happen in this episode that to me stand out. The first is a scene where Ted and Higgins have a debate over who has the authority to make a decision. Higgins has decided to bring Dr. Sharon back, and he made that decision without consulting Ted. And Ted is upset because obviously at this point, he's not really a huge fan of Dr. Sharon and would like to see her depart quickly. But Ted feels really ambivalent about whether he should castigate Higgins for having made this decision without consulting him, or whether Higgins really actually does have the authority and the autonomy to make this decision without checking in with Ted. Yeah, you say a debate between Ted and Higgins, but it's almost like a debate between Ted and Ted. Yeah, completely. This is one of those scenes, the humor comes from the fact that the words that Ted is saying and his angry tone completely don't match. Higgins says, I should have asked you first. You are 100% right. And Ted replies angrily, 100% false, you know, essentially arguing the opposite point. So this is clearly something that Ted understands intellectually, that the director of football operations gets to make autonomous decisions from the coach, but he's just not happy with the decision. And of course, it's not just any decision. It's a decision around keeping this person who is a threat in some ways to Ted's sense of his role at the club as the fixer of all problems, as the social intelligence that keeps everything running. We saw a little bit of this in the previous episode where Ted agrees that we should absolutely bring Dr. Sherrod on board, and he's shaking his head no as he says it. Yeah, exactly. I think what's really important here that we can extrapolate out to what a lot of people experience in business is what happens if the person who has the positional authority to make a decision makes a decision and other people don't like it? How should they conduct themselves? How should they give that feedback? I, I think this can be an incredible sticking point for teams, particularly top teams of leaders whose decisions affect each other. 
And there's no easy answer for this, but it, it feels like the show is really calling our attention to decision-making as being a difficult thing to do within an organization. Just the second thing I'll say on this is the decision-making that gets made around Jamie and about whether Jamie should be offered the opportunity to come back to Richmond. Ted very clearly makes this decision. It's his decision to make, but he does it in a somewhat inclusive way. We mentioned earlier in the recap that Ted asks everybody in the Diamond Dogs for their opinions. This is good leadership. It's in keeping with Ted's inclusive style. But when Ted finally decides that he needs to make this decision, which is going to be uncomfortable or not welcomed by clearly about 50% of the people who will be affected by the decision, he does it on his own. And this, in a way, is the kind of leadership that we have not seen from Ted up to this point. We've seen Ted anchor very strongly in his leadership in making people happy and safe, and that is not what he is doing here. He has made his own decision, and he's going to have to live with it. Indeed. And we'll see the ramifications of this choice in upcoming episodes. So that was Season 2, Episode 2 of Ted Lasso, Lavender. Coming up... Season two, episode three, Do the Rightest Thing.